Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Gurleen Kaur, and I am a fourth-year medical student at Albany Medical College, and I'm grateful to have matched at Brigham and Women's Hospital for internal medicine residency. As a future woman in cardiology, I am passionate about cardiovascular prevention, cardioobstetrics, and medical education. I'm a member of the ACC Medical Student Leadership Group and serve on the editorial committee for the Medical Student Perspective page. I'm also a proud CardioNerds Academy intern of House Eindhoven. Thanks for tuning in to this very special episode as part of our Narratives and Cardiology series, where we have conversations to highlight inspiring faculty and trainees as part of our mission to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. In this episode, we have the great honor of learning from Dr. Gina Lundberg from Emory University and Dr. Zarina Sherelaya from the Cleveland Clinic. We discussed Dr. Lundberg's advocacy for both women's cardiovascular health and women in cardiology at multiple levels, from the local to the global arenas. Hearing this discussion with Dr. Lundberg and Dr. Sherelaya was so meaningful and highlighted the importance of mentors along all the various stages of a career in medicine. Mentors that both look like you and don't look like you, and mentors inside and outside of your institution. I've been lucky to have several mentors in cardiology, both men and women. This discussion also reminded me of my time at the American Heart Association scientific sessions as a second year medical student, where I attended the Women Cardiology Luncheon. And at that time, I felt the sentiment of, you need to see one to be one, as I interacted with women in cardiology in so many diverse fields and practices. As a future resident and aspiring woman in cardiology, I truly stand on the shoulders of giants like Dr. Lundberg, who have dedicated their career to promoting hashtag choose cardiology. And I am reminded that along every step of this journey in medicine, we can play a part in addressing the leaky pipeline to retain women in STEM fields and encourage them to pursue medicine and cardiology. We thank you for subscribing to the Cardio Nerds. Consider supporting our mission to democratize cardiovascular education by rating us on your favorite podcast app, donating using Patreon, showing your support with CardioNerd swag, or sharing why you hashtag choose cardiology on Twitter, tagging at CardioNerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The speakers have no relevant disclosures, and there is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. Now, let's dive into this incredible narratives episode, because our differences make us stronger. Hey, Cardio Nerds, it's Zarina Sherelaya, one of the fit advisors for the Narratives and Cardiology series. These episodes are all about learning from and meeting inspiring leaders in our field as we discuss both their professional areas of passion and personal narratives. Today, for this discussion, we are absolutely thrilled to be joined by Dr. Gina Lundberg. Hi, Dr. Lundberg. Hi, Zarina. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. We're so excited to have you. 
So Dr. Lundberg is a preventive cardiologist and associate professor of medicine at Emory University, as well as the clinical director of the Emory Women's Cardiovascular Health Center. She attended medical school at the Medical College of Georgia and did her internal medicine training at Atlanta Medical Center. From there, she went on to do her cardiology fellowship at Rush University in Chicago. Dr. Lundberg has dedicated a substantial portion of her career to advocacy for women's heart health and also women in cardiology. Her efforts have expanded to prestigious roles on both state and national levels. She has served on the advisory board for the Department of Women's Health for the state of Georgia and has also been very involved with all of the Go Red for Women initiatives in Atlanta since its development in 2003. She has earned numerous awards and was included on Atlanta's top 25 professional women to watch, as well as Atlanta's top 10 innovators in medicine. She has been chosen as a Castle Connolly top doctor for multiple years. And most recently, and very impressively, she was elected to be chair of the Women in Cardiology Council for the National ACC. In addition to that, she has a strong social media presence and was chosen as a top 10 female cardiologist on social media. She has been interviewed on CNN and USA Today on heart disease in women and has published numerous articles and book chapters on the subject as well. Overall, she's been a mentor to many women in cardiology throughout her career, and we are so honored and excited to be able to hear more about her journey. So welcome again, Dr. Lundberg. Thank you so much, Zarina. So Dr. Lundberg, you have been a strong and consistent advocate for both women's cardiovascular health and women in cardiology. And as an advocate, you've had tremendous impact on patients and mentees, really at all levels, from the local to the global. Let's begin this conversation with a local. You established the very first women's heart program in the state of Georgia in 1998. Can you tell us the why and the how? I can't imagine that women's heart programs were very common back then. Well, no, they weren't. In fact, at that point, there were no Go Red for Women campaigns or red dresses, none of that. I had been in private practice in the Atlanta area since 1994. And for years, I was seeing women who presented really with classic uh, angina symptoms, heaviness, pressure, tightness in the chest. And they had been told repeatedly by different physicians, you know, uh, it's your stomach, it's reflux, it's your nerves, you know, go home and take a bubble bath, you just need to de-stress. And and many times these women had never even had an EKG, let alone being sent for a stress test. And really, I just felt that it was an injustice and I was very frustrated by it all. So I went to my partners and said, I think that uh, a role I could fill is starting a women's heart program. And they, you know, kind of scratched their heads and said, well, what would you do? Just like take care of all the women with fluky chest pain and mitral valve prolapse. Uh, and I said, well, no, obviously <laughs> there's so much more going on. Women have ischemia, women have heart disease. And so they were intrigued by it. And uh, in 1998, I started the Women's Heart Center with Cardiovascular Associates in Georgia. And at the time, it was a little strange. It wasn't well known at all. There were maybe 10 in the whole country. But as things progressed in the late 90s and, and 2000s, we started to get more information about heart disease in women, how it was overlooked, undertreated. There were really no sex-specific guidelines at that time. And around 2003, 2004, the American Heart Association started Go Red for Women campaign. And then over the years, you know, it became trendier to have a women's heart program. And so there are many of them. Every state generally has a few. And I was working out of St. Joseph's Hospital here in Atlanta. And then around 
2012, we became part of the Emory Healthcare System. Emory didn't have a clinical program, although they had tremendous research going on, of course, with Dr. Nanette Wenger. And at that time, Dr. Leslie Shaw was still at Emory. They had fabulous education and research. They didn't really have a clinical program. So they brought me on board as the clinical director, and I've been at Emory ever since. Yeah, that's incredible, Dr. Lundberg. And, you know, I'm remembering back to our conversation with Dr. Nanette Wenger when we discussed the past, present, and future of women's cardiovascular health. And just, you know, hearing your experience and your work at Emory, it's just so clear how important you were as a driver of that past of women's cardiovascular health to bring us to that present. And there's something, you know, she wrote in that 1993 NGM review that I'm remembering. In, she wrote, in women as in men, chest pain compatible with angina pectoris warrants evaluation for coronary heart disease. And I remember when I read that in preparing for that discussion, I I read it a few times over and over and over again, because I was like, wait, is it literally just saying if a woman has chest pain, you've got to like look into it? You know, that's literally the depth of that sentence. And clearly we've come a long way and it's just remarkable how leaders like yourself and Dr. Wanger and others were so instrumental in bringing us to where we are now. Well, and at the time she made that statement, it really was quite radical. People did not believe that women had heart disease, not ischemic heart disease. They would just not even think of doing an EKG. And I saw so many women who, by the time they finally got to me, you know, had cardiomyopathy and left bundle branch block on EKG and extensive ischemia. And some had even had silent heart attacks. And they'd been told time and time again, sometimes even in the emergency room, oh, you're not having a heart attack. You're fine. It's just you're strong and, you know, it's reflux and they're all on protonics and nobody's even had a stress test. It really was a radical thing at that time to say, no, women have heart disease. Now we take it for granted. And of course, a woman gets a good evaluation. And we have wonderful sex-specific research going on and all of these new risk factors that we didn't even know 10 years ago. So the, the work has been tremendous. It's paying off because women now have fewer deaths from cardiovascular disease than men. But for decades, we had more deaths every year than men. It's really incredible to hear that and to hear the process, Dr. Lindbergh. And as fellows, you know, we are coming up in an age where we are being taught very clearly and explicitly to take cardiovascular care, particularly with women, very seriously. And we are broadening our practice that chest pain isn't that classic lawnmower chest pain necessarily. In fact, Dr. Jaber in one of our recent episodes on imaging was discussing, he's part of a group that's discussing the management of chest pain syndromes. And he said that for the longest time, they were having discussions of what to call chest pain. Because if you just call chest pain, chest pain, and you know, if you focus on classical angina, you'll miss so many different women who are presenting with actual epicardial obstruction because you're being very fixated on the terms chest pain. So we've definitely come a long way. And what I find really neat about this is back in the day, you were noticing a pattern of neglect regarding women's cardiovascular care. And you actually put that pattern together and decided to do something about it instead of just like noticing it and just continuing your clinical practice. And as you talked about, you started at the really local level, but you really didn't stop there. The impact of your advocacy continued to expand at the state level. As you mentioned, you were appointed to the advisory board for the Department of Women's Health for the entire state of Georgia in 2007. How does one get to be sought out for such an important position? And what was your actual role as part of the board? And then for me personally, if you do me a favor, could you tell us if you had any hesitancies before you started knowing that this would take up so much time? Well, it's funny when I got a phone call saying it was the governor's office and they wanted to interview me for this. My first thought was it was a joke. 
And then my second thought was, you know, do I have any nannies or cleaning people that I didn't claim taxes on? Because you can't be an embarrassment to the governor. So it was kind of funny. At the time, I was very active with the American Heart Association. I was on the Atlanta board and working on many of the Go Red for Women heart balls. We had luncheons. We had fashion shows. We were really doing a lot in those early days to promote the Go Red campaign. I was active with the ACC. At that point, I was on the prevention of cardiology committee and just locally volunteering, working with pretty much anybody who would invite me. I talked to large groups of women realtors. I worked with teachers groups and rotary clubs and lions clubs and, you know, you name the organization if they invited me to come talk about heart disease, I did. And I spoke at the Sam Nunn building um, downtown in Atlanta and worked with some of the people in the Division of Health and Human Services here. And so they contacted me and we were part of the Department of Women's Health for the state. And we were a board appointed by, at that time it was Governor Sonny Perdue. And we really talked about how to improve women's health, how to improve the awareness, which is really the big problem we were having at that time, getting physicians to recognize it, but also getting the public to recognize it. One of the challenges, as you all know, for women with heart disease is they are primarily seeing their OBGYN until menopause or later. Of course, the gynecologist doesn't want to be checking their cholesterol and blood pressure any more than you and I want to deliver babies. And so we can be very siloed. And just getting the word out to them as primary care physicians to recommend women, have them come see us after a complicated pregnancy, the connection between preeclampsia, eclampsia, and heart disease, all of these things were just starting to be recognized at that point. And so we really just spent a lot of time working in some of the rural areas of Georgia that didn't even have access to care, but also working with the healthcare providers themselves to educate them on the importance of sending patients either to primary care for these evaluations or to a cardiologist. Wow, it's so amazing to hear about how much you've accomplished in this space, Dr. Lundberg. It's definitely only a natural progression that you have now become the chair-elect for the ACC Women in Cardiology section. So I want to say a big congratulations to you from all of us cardio nerds. We're so excited to continue following your career and your leadership with the ACC. In one of the emails you sent us, actually, you told us how you want to open the doors and break the ceiling so we can have more women interested in cardiology. Do you recall the moment when you decided that you wanted to dedicate a portion of your career to the women in cardiology effort? Well, you know, I keep telling you all, I'm an old, old woman. And when you've done heart disease in women for 20 to 30 years, while it's still very important to me, I wasn't the passion that it, the flame that it had been initially. And I was really looking for ways to ignite a new passion and maybe start a new chapter in my life. One of the things that helped was social media. I got on Twitter, I think about six years ago, and I was very impressed at the ability to mentor women that people literally from all over the country, even around the world would reach out to me through Twitter or direct message me about challenges or issues or just looking for encouragement. I started to realize after I joined the Emory faculty, you know, how few women there really are and how few of them had received encouragement. My own experience was that when I was a resident and I told some of the faculty and my other colleagues that I was thinking about cardiology, you would always hear, oh, wow, that's really tough. Oh, wow. Are you sure you want to do that? 
Well, that's kind of a statement of, yeah, that's a great field. It's also a statement of maybe you're not tough enough, maybe you're not good enough, or maybe it's just too big a challenge. And what I'm trying to get women to say and and get faculty and everyone to say is when you hear a young woman say, I'm thinking about a career in cardiology, say, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. You'll love it. And don't say the but. (laughs) That's really hard. I think we need to stay focused on what a rewarding career it is. I've been married for 28 years. I have two well-adjusted, wonderful adult children who both chose fields in medicine. I have a full life. I have a wonderful husband. We travel and take great vacations together. And yet I still have a lot of passion and energy for working with new trainees, encouraging women to go into medicine, spending time on social media, and then just doing all the clinical care that I do five days a week. And so I think the message needs to be that it's a rewarding, wonderful field. And so by getting involved with WIC at the Georgia ACC level first, and then later at the national level, I think I really had a platform to do that. Wow. So many things to go off of there, Dr. Lundberg. Something really that you said earlier about how people would say, you know, like you told them you're going into cardiology and they say, oh, wow. And that, that gives off this like kind of hidden sentiment about that maybe it's not really for you. I definitely had personally, like when I was in medical school and I was considering surgery and I would tell certain people that I was thinking about surgery, I got a very similar kind of response and I knew it was supposed to be supportive, but at the same time, it was not quite as supportive. And I know nowadays, let's say within cardiology, particularly with the cath lab, when some of my female colleagues are thinking about going into cath medicine and you listen to them telling somebody that they're so excited about cath and the rotation's amazing and this is something they'll consider, a lot of times there's an immediate response that, are you sure you want to do that? Or like, it's really rough lifestyle, that kind of thing, instead of just being absolutely supportive with the people that we mentor and and particularly addressing what they need to hear, not what we think we want to hear and projecting onto them. So I really appreciated that. You have been so successful within the advocacy space at the local and state and government levels. What are your plans for advocacy and leadership at the national society level? How do you plan to use your precision with the ACC Women in Cardiology Leadership Section to affect change successfully? Well, my goals are very much in alignment with the national goals on diversity, equity, inclusion. I think we have to build a pipeline. You know, that that concept of the leaky pipeline where little girls quit taking science classes sometimes after fifth grade. My parents insisted I take a math and a science every year through high school. I was kind of a nerdy kid. But it fostered my love for science for birthdays and Christmas. You know, I was the kid that got the microscope or the telescope or the ant farm or something like that. And my dad thought it was really important to encourage me as a girl to stay interested in science. So that really helped. One of the things we're doing at Emory and that we're going to be doing on the national level is working to really start the pipeline with encouraging STEM, even in the grade school, because so many girls are lost even by fifth or sixth grade. And then we want to keep working with the high school girls and as well as the undergraduate women to think about a career in healthcare. My daughter is a nurse and my son is a radiology tech, so they aren't physicians, but they love medicine and they love being in the different fields. So we've got to work on that pipeline and just encourage young women to stay in STEM. And then when it comes to residency, we really have to actively recruit. You know, there's been sort of this bad reputation that cardiology is not family friendly or female friendly. And that's not necessarily true. 
So for the last four years, I've been the ACC Women in Cardiology Communications Chair, and I started posting under hashtag Choose Cardiology. And we have all these wonderful stories on the ACC website, acc.org, under membership under Women in Cardiology, where we've asked all kinds of women in fellowship and early career, and now we're even getting into later career, of why you chose cardiology, why interventional cardiology, why EP, why prevention, why imaging, and what really drove us into it. And there are these incredible stories that I encourage everyone to go online and read about. The other thing is we've got to improve the work environment. There's been very little flexibility in cardiology. And sometimes women need more time during pregnancy. There's data that shows that female physicians, as well as nurses, because they spend a lot of time on their feet because of the high demands of the job, they tend to have more pregnancy complications. And I certainly did as a fellow. I went on bed rest at 32 weeks and had a lot of challenges. And many of our women cardiologists have similar stories. So we have to start to improve the work environment, not only during pregnancy, but even afterwards, having flexible scheduling, maybe putting call off until later in your career and working something out where maybe you make a little less when you take less call or you share call with someone else on the weekends. We need flexibility in getting off early for kids' school events or flexibility with childcare. What if you had childcare built right in the hospital where you could run down and breastfeed your child or have lunch with them or see how their day went and then get back to work? So just improving the work environment for women, I think is going to be really important for job retention and for encouraging more women to go into EP and interventional cardiology as well as heart failure and other fields that require longer fellowships. Yeah, Dr. Lundberg, thank you for that. And I really appreciate how in thinking about, you know, addressing this issue, this issue of lack of diversity and perceived lack of inclusivity, it's such a systemic and structural problem. And so the response has to be multi-pronged, right? Spanning from an early pipeline to making the field more attractive and inviting to students and residents to making the work more hospitable for family friendliness and mentorship and as well as career advancement and ascension to leadership positions with opportunities for everyone, pay equity. And there's so many facets that are involved. And so really excited to see people like yourself interested in the area, taking leadership positions to drive change. And I think it's important to start look at men's roles too. I mean, I know I've said women and that's my job as the women in cardiology leader. But it's important for men, too. If men really started taking their paternity time and being home with their wives and their children after a pregnancy, it would feel more equitable. It shouldn't be that, you know, a woman can take several months off, but a man doesn't even take a week. So one thing we've really worked on is trying to encourage residents and fellows who are males that if you're a partner and you adopt a child or have a child, you should take that time off, too. It's not just for the women. And by building stronger families, you're going to feel better about your colleagues at work, your work-life balance or your work-life integration, and you're going to be happier at work too. So I think improving the work environment for the men and the women is really essential going into the future. Dr. Lundberg, thank you so much. You know, Dan is a, a new, not a new father, but he is a an acute on chronic father. Can I say he, he has just had his fifth kid and I just had my latest two of three kids. And so, yes, you know, I think the emphasis on making our work environment, our training environment and our faculty environment family friendly is relevant for all of us. In addition, my wife is a NICU fellow. And the fact that I'm able to take a paternity leave also means that I can give her reprieve to advance her own career and be a fellow and learn and train and advance. And so I do think that, you know, thinking of it as parental leave and making the environment friendly for everyone is important and essential. 
Dr. Lindberg, I also just want to ask, the culture within medicine sometimes is really opposed to that idea. It depends on where you train, and that matters quite a lot. Did you ever have any resistance when you were trying to make these cultural changes from either faculty or even down at the levels of the residents and the trainees? Oh, absolutely. So I had my first child during my fellowship while I was at Rush University in Chicago, and that environment was so supportive. My program director, my attendings who I was working with, the female faculty especially, they were just all very supportive. I was far from home. My family's here in Atlanta. And because I had this really complicated pregnancy, you know, it was really scary. And they were my family, and they just took such good care of me. And I got to 36 weeks with the pregnancy and and had a healthy little boy. It just meant so much to me. And in fact, they're still great friends. I go up to Chicago. They've had me for grand rounds and different lectures. And if any of you follow me on Twitter, you know that I'm a big Annabelle Volgman fan. And she's just been a dear, dear friend and mentor. And she really helped me during that pregnancy. In fact, you know how poor you are when you're a fellow. And my husband was getting his master's at Purdue, so we were really poor. And Annabelle bought me the car seat to take the baby home from the hospital. And it was just such a dear gift. And it was so important to have the support. Then flip side that, two years later, I had my second child during private practice. It was a totally different environment. They were not happy that I was pregnant. They were not happy that I wanted time off. I was allowed to take three weeks off unpaid and no one wanted to offset any of the call. No one did anything to help. And it really was an adversarial work environment after that. I left that group within a year or so because I felt like they just didn't understand my priorities or my goals or share the same priorities and goals that I did. So I I think it really makes a big difference. Um, In Georgia, we still don't have mandatory paid uh, maternal leave or paternal leave. And it's really just up to your group to work that out with you. Being at a large academic facility at Emory, you know, we have much more standard rules and we are much more supportive of our faculty. And I've really appreciated that. So it can be very, very hard for men and women to take time off. And I've heard male colleagues, other males say to them, like, what do you mean you're taking time off for paternity? You didn't have the baby. And it just shows such a a lack of understanding and, and poor compassion and just poor people skills. So I really think that when you hear somebody's not getting time off, or getting the support they need, step up, speak up for them. And if you're in an environment that isn't supportive and family is important to you, you need to start looking for another job because that's not an environment you want to stay in. Yeah, that's right. Step up and speak up. And it's so heartwarming to hear the role that Dr. Volgman played in your story, Dr. Lundberg. You know, as a cardi nerd, we take great pride in learning from faculty leaders, but we also derive equal inspiration from our colleagues and peers, many of whom who have really accomplished incredible things and had tremendous impact even at an early stage. And so we're so proud to have fellow and training advisors as part of our narrative series like you, Zarina. And you've been involved with the Ohio State Chapters ACC section. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested and involved and what you've done with the group? You know, I got involved with the Ohio ACC initially while I was a general fellow and served as a council member back then. And then I decided to apply to be a council co-chair thereafter and was fortunate enough to serve as a co-chair this past year. And so, you know, while it's been a rough year with COVID, we have actually been fortunate to be able to take advantage of the virtual format that a lot of meetings have taken on. And we created a career development series for current cardiology fellows in training, focusing on things like job contract negotiations, the pros and cons of academics versus private practice, and then just other practical topics for cardiology fellows to consider as they go through their training. 
In addition to that, with the help of several others, I've been able to work closely with the Ohio ACC to get a women in cardiology chapter started in Ohio. And we've had several events already, one of which has been a leadership forum. And then Dr. Lundberg, previously, you were talking about the concept of the pipeline. And so right now, we're also involved in a project to recruit women early in their education to cardiology. And it's a campaign called She Looks Like a Cardiologist, which will be targeted at high school females to really try and highlight all of the great things about choosing cardiology as a career. It's going to be a virtual event and it'll have a panel of female cardiologists across subspecialties and high school women around the Midwest can log on and hear about cardiology as a career, ask questions, be connected with mentors. In addition to that, we've also started a spotlight campaign basically to kind of highlight female cardiologists in Ohio on the ACC website to enable networking among women in cardiology, collaborate for academic purposes, and overall just to kind of highlight the accomplishments of the females in cardiology in the Midwest. Dr. Lundberg, as someone who's passionate about professional diversity and supporting and mentoring other women in cardiology, your career has been really inspiring and motivating. What advice do you have for early career people such as myself who share your drive to improve equity within medicine? And if people want to get more involved with that, how would they go about that? Well, one of the most important things to do early on is to really start building your network. I really encourage people when we're not having COVID, of course, to attend the ACC meetings, attend AHA and your other scientific societies, like if you're in ECHO or interventional cardiology. One of the best meetings is the ACC Legislative Conference because it tends to be a small conference and you get really up close and personal with all the ACC leaders. That's when you can really spend time with the president, like Dina Pappas or the different committee chairs and get to know people on a more personal basis. So you want to start building that network early. You also want to start sharing your story with other people through mentoring, just like you outlined. You know, you still have friends at your high school and your college and maybe your sorority or other groups you've been involved with. And so go back and give them a lecture or a talk on why you love medicine and what great role it can be and all the different diverse fields of cardiology. People don't understand that we don't all do the same thing. In fact, we're all very subspecialized. And what I do as a preventive cardiologist is very different than what an interventional or an EP or a heart failure physician does. So start building your network. And then the other thing is build your autoraft. And by autoraft, I mean that group of people, men or women, who really support you and lift you up, who might recommend you for a position or a lecture that might share opportunities with you that maybe they can't write this paper, but man, this is right up your alley. You should do this. I have this fantastic auto raft of about 12 women. We have a WhatsApp, and so we're constantly talking on there and sharing kudos and encouragement. And sometimes somebody needs lifting up, and sometimes we're sharing accolades, and we share our private lives. We just really support each other, and a lot of times we collaborate and write papers together or do research together. So build your auto raft so that you've got this group that keeps you floating and keeps you going even on those bad days. Yes, that's such amazing advice and something that I will definitely be incorporating in my approach. There's been a a growing body of literature and webinars on the overall lack of female representation in cardiology and subspecialties of cardiology too, all highlighting various factors that that are sort of the root cause. And even though there has been a lot of attention on this issue, has there been much improvement in female representation as a result? And what do you think is sort of the main reason behind this disparity? 
Well, things have definitely improved. So I was sharing with you all before the interview that I went off to medical school in 1984. And at that time, we had a quota at the Medical College of Georgia of how many women they would take. They took 188 students and each year they took 40 women. They never took 41. They took 40. As I became a resident, it was closer to internal medicine. Males and females were pretty equal in the residency program I went through. But then when I got a cardiology fellowship, it was one woman and five males. And that's how it was every year. There was no quota, but they always just took one female. When I got out of training, it was about 9% of cardiology fellows were female. And now it's closer to 20%. And at Emory, it's even higher. I'm very proud of what we've done to recruit more uh, women and more people of diverse backgrounds. I think the statistics for African-Americans is still around 4%. And for women going into interventional cardiology or EP, it's still 4%. So we've definitely made improvements, but you can tell we still have so far to go. I think one of the most important things we need going forward is more male involvement. We need male mentors who mentor females, and we need more white physicians mentoring more physicians of diverse backgrounds, more, you know, black and Hispanic and Asian and all kinds of diverse backgrounds. So we can't expect the people who are in the low numbers, the women or other races and ethnicities, to fix it themselves. We all have to work together to fix it. And so I think it's really important to increase the number of applicants. If there's only a few token female applicants, you're going to pick lower. But if we start to have 50% applicants, we might start to have 50% in the fellowship. And that little saying of you need to see one to be one is so true. One of the things I've worked with at Emory is we have a lot of female faculty, but sometimes they're out at the satellite offices or doing research and they're not always on the clinical rotation when the residents come through doing uh, cardiology consults or inpatient critical care. And so we've tried to make it so that if they don't have female cardiology attending while they're on, that they at least have a a lunch with me or a phone call with me or some time to get together in one of my clinics so that they can see that there really are female cardiologists who love their job or passionate and that they feel a connection there. We've worked very hard at Emory to increase the number of residents who are interested in going into cardiology. In years past, we would usually have 10 to 12 residents pursue a cardiology fellowship. But last year, we had over 17 applicants. And I was so excited because four of them were women. And I've worked very hard mentoring these women. And all four of them matched in excellent cardiology programs. So you really need to know someone in cardiology who is a mentor to you or a role model. There's so many good fields in medicine to go into, and we really need to show young residents that cardiology is a great field to pursue, whether you're a female, whether you're uh, African-American, Black, Hispanic, whatever your background, you need to see one to be one. So clearly, we've made improvements with regards to diversity and inclusion, but just as clearly, we have a long way to go. And there's particularly stark gender disparity when it comes to the procedural fields like EP and interventional cardiology. We actually just recently had a wonderful discussion about electrophysiology with uh, Rachita Navarra and Dr. Christine Elbert. I'm so excited to release that. And you know, the themes are pretty similar. And a lot of it goes back to Dr. Lumberg, what you were saying about you can't be what you can't see and the need to have mentors that can support you, both mentors that look like you and also mentors who don't look like you. you know, I think the, the issue of mentorship is so relevant here. Zarina, you're a first year intervention fellow and will soon be teaching me in the cath lab. 
what's been your thought process and experience as a woman in interventional cardiology? And what would you say to women residents and general fellows considering a career in the cath lab? Well, I'll start out by saying that I've been so honored to be one of two females in our interventional cardiology class, into the class of four fellows total. And I will say that the question of whether or not to do interventional cardiology as a female was one that kept me up many nights during my general fellowship. But to sort of boil it down, my main concerns, which are pretty typical for women in cardiology, were whether or not a career in intervention would prevent me in some way from having a family, not only from a radiation perspective, but from a work-life balance perspective. So from a radiation standpoint, actually, Dr. Sheila Sani and the Women as One organization just recently put out a paper on radiation safety in the cath lab in general. But this document also pretty much single-handedly works to dispel a lot of myths about being pregnant in the cath lab and that it is very possible and safe as well, as long as you are monitoring your dose, wearing the protective lead, and reducing radiation with other technical aspects. For those women considering interventional cardiology, do not let the radiation exposure dissuade you because you want to have a family. It is very possible. And I myself, just to plan for the future, if I may consider wanting to start a family, just to know for myself how much exposure there actually is being in the cath lab on a daily basis, I have been wearing another badge under my lead. And really, the exposure is well below radiation limits for pregnancy. So that's the radiation piece. And then from a work-life balance perspective, my work-life balance has been great during training. And beyond that, for career considerations, you really have the liberty to choose what kind of environment you want to work in and how much call you take, depending on what practice you seek out, whether it be academic or private practice. You know, I haven't really gotten to that phase yet where I'm taking STEMI call, but one of my mentors, particularly during medical school, was Dr. Capers. And I still remember him telling me that if you're passionate about it and you enjoy what you do, you're going to make it work. And I fully believe in that mindset. I think that having a supportive partner is also a huge piece of it too, if you do have kids and other responsibilities. But overall, I would say I love procedures. I love being in the cath lab because it's a lot of on-the-fly decision-making and changing your strategy as the case goes along. So I'm overall very happy that I chose intervention, and I strongly encourage any female who's considering it to pursue that if you're drawn to a procedural subspecialty. So I'd be happy to talk to anyone about it as well. It's funny, Zarina, the very first female cardiologist I ever met was a female who was an interventional cardiologist, and she was also a black female interventional cardiologist. And just having this role model of this, you know, badass woman in the cath lab who was saving lives and keeping up with all the men and just, you know, rocking was so impressive. It made all the difference for me. And so my first impression was that all female cardiologists were interventional cardiologists. And it was only during my fellowship that I learned I could be a preventive cardiologist, which is really where I found my niche. But I think it's just so important to know one, to see one, and then you feel like you can be one. And I'm so excited that you've pursued interventional cardiology. Sheila Sani is very special to me. I've worked with her for years. And that first radiation paper was started with a talk we had her give at ACC WIC. And it's really important to know that the risks aren't near as high as people think. And it really is a a wonderful field. So, you know, kudos to you and congrats. And someday you'll be that badass woman in the cath lab who everybody thinks is just so great and is in awe of. I I will say, having seen Zarina in the cath lab, she's already pretty badass. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Although I don't know if we're going to get banned from Spotify for saying that. (laughs) 
Oh, okay. uh, I, iTunes might. We might have to bleep stuff out. <laughs> Speaking of women in interventional cardiology who are also badasses, I get to really shout out my co-fellow, Jackie Latino. She's just so amazing. We're doing our interventional year this year. Actually, we're equally as excited to start our structural next year. I honestly learn from her every day. And yes, oh my gosh, she keeps me so safe. She knows how to give me a lot of pointers with regards to radiation safety, let me just say. And then, you know, just from that line, no one, C1, B1, I could see the first year fellows who she's training and basically they're working side by side at the cath lab table just so excited and so it's just a real treat to be working with her and see that inspiration it's just absolutely wonderful in terms of career advancement dr lundberg do you think that women face more challenges when it comes to obtaining promotions or moving into leadership positions and if so is there something practical that we can overcome from again the administrative level but also at the colleague level Well, Julie Silver has done some great research on this, and there are great studies out there outlining this. What it is, is getting promoted is based on developing a career regionally, as well as nationally, and then internationally. And so that depends on giving lectures at major conferences, and yes, writing papers and collaborating, but also service achievements, being on different committees, roles you play in these medical societies. Well, if women are busy, maybe with childcare and other gender roles, they're not always able to go to these meetings. They're not always able to pay the dues for these meetings. And then if you're not actively involved, you're not going to get one of those roles. So there's kind of this barrier, and she talks about the triple barrier between the medical societies, research, and lectures, that if you aren't able to achieve these things, you're not going to get promoted. For me, I spent my first 18 years in private practice, so working on promotion was just not part of my life. And then I joined Emory, and I started out as an assistant professor. That was not okay with me. I, I wanted to be a full professor. So, you know, I worked very hard to achieve the things that got me up to associate professor. And hopefully in the next couple of years, I'll be a full professor. But you really have to be very active and engaged. And that's just very challenging when a woman has other child care roles, or maybe she's caring for an older parent, or maybe she's helping her husband with things that are taking up more of his time that she's able to, you know, off balance. So it really is. You, you've got to get leadership roles. You've got to collaborate. You have to build this reputation. And so what I've told a lot of women is don't feel like you have to have achieved professor by the time you're 40 or 50. Maybe start in your mid to late career to achieve those goals. That's basically what I've done. And I got to spend a lot of time focusing on child care while I was in private practice. There's also a lot of great things you learn in private practice that are important for leadership later. We never had a class in medical school on leadership, and I never learned anything in residency or fellowship about leadership either. You learn a lot of that through experience, and some of that's not necessarily doing it the right way, and then finding out what works for you. So a lot of times trying to achieve associate professor or professor or even chair or dean is something that's better suited for when your kids are older and you're more in your mid to career or even your early late career. Thank you so much for bringing that up, Dr. Lundberg. You know, I think this is an issue that really hits home for a lot of us. There was a really nice Women as One webinar about parental leave policies. And there was one thing that was said that really stuck with me. And it was uh, Dr. Sharon Hayes. The pretext, I think, for a lot of us, even taking a small handful of weeks off from work as fellows, you just feel so guilty, right? I mean, you're not taking it off to go party. You're taking it off to take care of your, your baby and do the right thing and be there for your family. But you still feel so guilty, like, oh, I should be in a cath lab or I should be, you know, reading a about coronary microvascular disease and all these things. But Dr. Hayes said something along the lines of thinking back over the 
perspective of late career person, it's such a small blip in time. You know, even if you take months off, it's such a small blip in time and that you can still recover from it and still advance and accomplish great things. And so I heard that when I was taking my own parental leave and it really was comforting that yeah, it's okay to take a little bit of time for your family and then come back to your career and you can still do amazing things afterwards. So it really meant a lot to hear that from somebody like her and, and, and you. Well, and it's so true because you can't get that time with your kids back. You know, once they go off to college and, and move out of the house and they're adults now, you can't go be like, oh, but I want to go to your ballet recital, honey. You can't get that back. Whereas your your career in medicine, it's a very long-term trajectory. I mean, cardiologist, look at Nanette Wenger. She's over 90. And I know many cardiologists who are in their mid and late 70s. So there's not the time crunch that a lot of young people put on themselves. I think one of the words of wisdom I say to a lot of these early career women is, you know, slow down. You don't have to drink the whole thing in your first 10 years. You can just slowly ease into it. And there's a time and a place for everything, a season for everything. And a lot of these things will come later when your kids don't need you at the the ballet recital or the piano recital or the football game or the hockey game. You cannot get that back with your kids. And now that I have adult kids, and they really feel like I always made them first, which is what they were, they're my number one priority. I'm just so proud that I have a great relationship with them and they feel loved and valued. And I didn't miss anything. And I'm really glad I didn't because you can't get that back later. Dr. Lumberg, this is really, really nice to hear. And again, that how you really centered your whole life around your children is just so wonderful, but yet also accomplished so many things. And the nicest thing is that they felt like they were the center at the whole time, which is what they truly were. Definitely something that we could model. I should probably work on a little bit better. But a side question here, you know, when people decide to go private practice first, let's say they're at a fellowship, they go private practice, or they take time to focus on their families and then want to go back and get back into academia, start doing more research. Do you find that there's a barrier to kind of get back into maybe what some might consider like a club within academic medicine and hard to break back in when people had stayed there the whole time? And if that is the case, do you have any advice for people who are thinking about getting back into academia? Yeah, I think it's actually quite easy to do. Academia is always looking for good talent and particularly if you have a niche. So obviously my niche was women and heart disease and I was doing something that no one else was doing and I had developed this reputation. And so Emory very much sought after me and it was wonderful. When they invited me to join the faculty, I was like, are you kidding? This is like waking up Christmas morning and you got everything on your list. I mean, it was fantastic. But I don't think you can be in private practice and just seeing patients, billing a million RVU and making a lot of money and then want to make the switch. You have to have either developed a niche that's valuable to academic medicine or maybe worked at the state level with your AHA or ACC to develop areas that are interesting to academics. There's a lot of private practice groups that do research and all of them would be very valuable in uh, academics. So I think you have to be academic minded, even while you're in private practice, develop a niche, develop a reputation, be known as someone who's interested in academic minded things, and then you make yourself available to them till later. But I think if you're just working hard and kind of in your own silo, that might not be so attractive. I know there's people that have done really well being interventional and have been part of registries, particularly through the ACC and all. And then later when they want to join an academic practice, they're very sought after for their skills and their expertise as, as well as the high volume that they've done. 
That's very valuable advice. So it sounds like for people who are considering private practice earlier in their career, but may have the itch for academia later to keep one foot in the door, so to speak, and kind of keep developing a niche or a brand that can somehow transition them back into academia when they so desire. Just switching gears a little bit, Dr. Lundberg, we'd love to hear your views on the power of social media. You told us a little bit about how passionate you were about improving equity for women in all races and colors in medicine, particularly in cardiology, and how we can use social media for mentoring, sponsorship, and advocacy is something that you've said. For me personally, social media has been completely a game changer and has unlocked an entirely new world and established so many real and fruitful connections that I feel every single day. So Dr. Lundberg, what do you think the role is for social media in terms of advocacy, mentorship, networking, and sponsorship? And how can we harness this energy for professional development? Well, one of the things I love about social media is it's so organic and and yet it's so grassroots. Like every day, you don't know what the hot topic is, right? So like you log on and you see what everybody's talking about. What's the hashtag? What's the new study? What is everybody weighing in on? What was the cool case study that people are talking about? I love that it's constantly changing every day. It's different. And I also like that everybody has a voice. You don't have to be uh, a Quinn Capers or a Sharon Hayes to be listened to on Twitter. There's a lot of fellows who have huge followings. There's a lot of program directors and internal medicine doctors. I mean, all kinds of different doctors that as cardiologists, we're constantly looking to say, hey, what did they say? So I love that. I love the connections, the networking, and really there's worldwide opportunities. Some of my best Twitter buddies don't live in the United States. And I like that when I wake up in the morning, well, everybody who you know is in London has already been tweeting for hours and they've already published things. So I just love that it's constantly changing. I think it's also more powerful than a lot of us have appreciated. I know um, a year and a half ago, I was at the ESC meeting in Paris, and I, I met a young woman who was a woman in cardiology, and she came to one of our sessions. And she came up to me later and said, you know, I was really depressed. I felt like there were no women. My boss is not very supportive of women, not very good to me. My life felt really challenging. I was thinking of leaving cardiology altogether. She said, and then I found all these different women on Twitter and started connecting and sharing stories. And she said, I just feel so empowered now. I love what I'm doing. And I feel like there's this worldwide network. There might not be people where I work that support me, but there's people all over the world that support me. And that was such a touching, powerful story. And that's really when it opened my eyes to these possibilities of there might be somebody out there in a work environment that isn't very good. They're not getting supported, but they don't have to just rely on those people in their hospital or even in their community. They've got people all over the world who want to hear what they have to say or share with them. And so it's just a really powerful tool. That's great, Dr. Lundberg. You know, an important part of the narrative series is to get to know our role models more personally and learn from their journey. Do you remember the moment you decided you wanted to become a cardiologist? Well, I do. I was a resident and we were in the CCU with a, a patient who was really doing badly. He was tachycardic. He was, you know, in the middle of a heart attack. And all of us internal medicine residents were just running around. We're like pulling our hair out. We're freaking out. We're thinking this guy's going to die. And in strolls this very cool, calm cardiologist. And he's not even breaking a sweat. And he looks up 
up at the monitor and he says, okay, let's get some IV low pressure guys. And he orders a few more things. And then he's like, okay, we're going to take this patient to the cath lab. And off they went and he saved the guy's life. And man, I just thought that was the coolest thing I had ever seen. And I said, I want to be a cardiologist too. Well, unfortunately, my program director had to sit me down a few times and say, Gina, you are not in a cardiology fellowship. You still have to take rheumatology, pulmonology, all these other rotations in internal medicine. Because after that, all I wanted to do was hang out with the cardiologist and hang out in the cath lab. And as I said, I met my first female cardiologist there. And I just thought that these people were just the most impressive. Nothing got them rattled. They stayed calm and in these crazy situations and they saved lives. I also got to work with cardiac rehab as a resident. Our program had a very strong cardiac rehab program. And I loved that too, that after a heart attack, you could get people up and, and exercise them. And so I really thought that, you know, cardiology had these, not only could you save a lot, if you could make it better so that they didn't have another heart attack. So I was totally sold on it and finished the other rotations that I had to learn and try to do a little internal medicine here and there still. But I just love cardiology. I'm like smiling ear to ear. This is really very moving. Dr. Lindbergh, you mentioned that we need more men to be supportive of women in medicine and women in cardiology. Can you share any experiences that speak to this in your professional career? Well, I already mentioned to you that, you know, in med school, we were vastly outnumbered. And then in residency, it was a little more equal. I just think that fellowship has come a long way. We're definitely attracting more women, but there's just so much more we can do. And I think at this point, it really is that kind of personal mentoring, personal leadership, making ourselves available to the women. And so I really just think that we have to keep growing on this idea of the women who are already in need to pull up other women and the men Men who are in need to make sure that other women feel like there's another role model for them. One of the things I love that happens on social media, and you all have probably been part of this, is when a, a program gets announced and it's all men on the panel, well, everybody speaks up and says, you know, this isn't right. You need to have more women. And, and that's just one more area. When you see a conference that's 100% men, you just assume, okay, all men are cardiologists. And if they'll just have a few women on the panel, a few women on the advertising, marketing materials, then you start to realize like, oh yeah, there are women out there. And the problem is there's amazingly talented women. It's not that there are zero women who could talk about certain interventional procedures, TAVR, CLIPS, ablations, watchmen. There's women out there doing it all over the place. We just have to make sure that they're visible so that we can see them so that nobody feels like, I don't want to be in an all-male field. I mean, good God. Gosh, we have more women cardiovascular surgeons, more women vascular surgeons than female cardiologists. So we really have to work on this because there's a lot of talent out there and we don't want to lose somebody and have a female say, oh, I'm going to go be a gastroenterologist or a surgeon when they'd make a fantastic cardiologist. You know, there really is a lot of talent out there, Dr. Lundberg, and I'm so proud to say that of the um, upcoming CardioNerds Cardio OB series, of the 35 speakers, 34 are just incredible, talented women. So very, very excited to learn from each and every one of them. Dr. Lundberg, what would you say to a brand new medical student as she dons her white coat for the very first time during her med school's white coat ceremony? Well, I'd whisper in her ear, consider cardiology, choose cardiology. Come talk to me. I'll show you how much fun we have. Hashtag choose cardiology. I love it. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. (laughs) 
Well, Dr. Lundberg, your story is incredible and it's been amazing to hear about your journey through cardiology and I can't wait to see the amazing things to come with your new role as chair with the ACC. And I think on a personal level, one thing for us to all keep in mind as men and women is the importance of work-life balance because there are moments, as you said, outside of the hospital that you just can't get back. So that's something that I'll definitely take forward with me. But want to thank you once again for joining and thanks to all of our cardio nerds for tuning in as well. Thanks so much for having me, Zarima and Ama and Dan. This has been just a fun chat, and I feel like we should have been having a cup of coffee together, and maybe someday we'll get to do it in person. But I I love what you all are doing. You're having such a strong impact, whether it's in education or just with these narratives, with these personal stories. And I really commend you for your talent and your passion and your dedication to this. And I'm just really honored that you all took time to talk to me today. The honor is most certainly ours, Dr. Lundberg. Thank you. This is Dr. Annabelle Vogman from Rush University Medical Center. I had the pleasure of having Dr. Gina Lundberg as one of my first female fellows when I started there in 1990. And she was just the most wonderful, energetic, enthusiastic female fellow that I could have had. We were so lucky to have each other because there weren't too many female cardiologist at the time back in early 1990s. And as a result, we became friends and we would go to the cardiology conferences together because there weren't too many of us. So we would just have fun. We'd share a room. And she started a heart center for women in Georgia, in Atlanta. And I just followed her and uh, did the same thing in Chicago. So she inspired me to create the Rush Heart Center for Women. Thank you. (laughs) 